We're working our way through the book of Romans on Sunday night. This is part 16. We're in that seventh chapter. It's a fascinating chapter, though it's not a breezy kind of chapter. It's, it's got cumbersome sentences, awkward structure to it, kind of internal arguments inside the text. So it's, it's not like reading the Lord's Prayer or something like that. It's the kind of text that you, you kind of bring your mind to and you set your brain down on the paper and say, okay, cranium, Holy Spirit, help, and let's sort out what Paul is saying. Romans 7 We're going to do 14 through 25 tonight. Romans 7, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. Now, what, you're, what he's talking about there is he sees this battle of conflicting affections in his heart. He wants some things on one level, and he wants completely opposite things on another level. And it's, and it's this dichotomy of affections, this seesaw battle of, of what delights his heart. I do not understand my own actions. He doesn't mean he's mentally deficient in some way. He, he just means there's, there's, there's something going on in me where my preferences pull me in two different directions at the same time. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, he hates it on one level, but he still goes ahead and does it. So he, he wants it on another level. See, I don't understand what's going on, he's saying. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So he's, he's kind of going against the law of God as it's revealed in text and as it's revealed in his conscience, he goes against it, but he says, but it isn't really me. I don't want to be like this, but sin that dwells within me. 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have, I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. The desire, but not the ability. 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want... It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. When I, when I do these bad things, he says, it's me, but it's not, it's not like the real me. It's not the best me. 21. So I find it to be a law. This is repeated over and over. That's what he means by law. It's not written down somewhere. I find it to be a, a rule a habit that when I, I want to do right, 
evil lies close at hand. It's right there. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, in here. But I see in my members, out here, there's, there's another law that's waging war against the law of my mind. And it's making me captive. It's like a prisoner. Making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man, wretched women that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord! Exclamation point. And so you think, there, there's the solution. And then, and then, just like Paul, back into it. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And you feel like saying, so what, what do you mean when you say praise God through Jesus Christ? He's, he's not out of this battle. He's not out of the struggle. So I was thinking, what do you call, what kind of title do you give to this teaching? And I'm calling it Paul's Honest fight with pretend spirituality. I called it that because he says things about his spiritual experience that don't play well on an evangelistic TV broadcast or show. Um, Kenneth Copeland won't make as much money with that kind of message. He won't be a billionaire anymore. Yes, I said be billionaire. <laughs> you get this balanced, honest picture of the Christian experience of new life when you study the whole letter of Romans, the whole thing together. See, if you just pick out isolated verses, you can kind of build whatever kind of Christian you want. You get different descriptions of the spiritual life if you just slice out isolated texts. You could, just, you could just go to Romans 6.14. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under the law, but under grace. There. That's a great picture, isn't it? Or you could just pick Romans 7.19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want. That's what I keep on doing. Well, there's a different picture. Or you could pick Romans 8, 1 and 2. Is this true? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There you go, set free. Or you could take the same chapter and just bump down a few verses to 22 and 23. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we just groan inwardly, groan inwardly, as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. So my point here is, you need to take the whole text Depending on which verses you want to choose, there's both fantastic news and there's very realistic news. And they're both true. So much has been accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. 
but not very much of it has been fully realized as of yet. There's victory, there's waiting, there's rejoicing, there's groaning, which is true, yes. The important point to note here is the groaning and the waiting do not diminish the victory and the certainty and the hopeful rejoicing. And explaining that mixture and how they fit together, that's what this text does in Romans 7. So I took all that time to say, Here's where we are, and here's what we're looking at. Point number one. I want to just briefly go over, if you take this whole picture, I want to go over why I believe, and there's a lot of dispute about this. I'm giving you my opinion. I believe Paul is describing the experience of a Christian in this passage. And I just want to tell you why. First of all, I, I agree with a lot of people like Martin Lloyd-Jones and others who, who the passage isn't primarily about a person at all. It's about the law and what happens when you try and live the Christian life from law. That's the theme of the passage. But I still think the way Paul paints that description is he's talking about the experience of a Christian person. Now, a lot of people think that can't be, Pastor Don. That can't be because of the graphic way Paul describes uh, 14 being sold under sin or 23 captive to the law of sin. They see phrases like that and they just conclude this has to be a person in like a pre-conversion kind of condition. A non-Christian. And I'll, I'll just be the first to admit it's a difficult passage and dogmatic statements ought to be made carefully. Here's why I doubt very much that Paul is picturing himself or anyone else in a pre-conversion condition. Primarily, I've come to that conclusion because it just doesn't line up with other passages where I know Paul is talking about a pre-conversion condition. A passage where we know he is talking about a pre-conversion condition would be something like Philippians 3, 4, and 6. Is that in your notes? Let's read it out loud together, okay? Read it with me. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And the words that hit me in that, here's his, he's talking about where he was before coming to Christ, his Jewish background. And the words that jump out at you are words like confidence in the flesh. He says it twice, confidence in the flesh. Zeal, blameless. This is not a guy mourning the presence of inward sin. This is a guy who is confident in his own righteousness, seeing no need of Christ. This is not a man tortured by his inability to keep the law. Not at all. This pre-conversion picture of Paul, this is a man who's just totally blind 
to the kind of inward righteousness that God requires. No sense of it. Blameless, he says. Can you believe it? Paul was brimming with self-confidence, brimming with pride. Now, to me, that's just totally different from like Romans 7, 18, and 19. I know that, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That's very different from Philippians 3. That is in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but no ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want. He's not blameless. The evil that I do not want, that's what I keep doing. Also, Romans 7, to me, doesn't seem to fit with the description where Paul, we know, Paul defines a pagan mind in Romans 1. I just strung some verses together so I wouldn't you know, have to read the whole chapter. But he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. There's a pagan mind. The pagan mind responds to divine truth by suppressing it, verse 18, with a debased mind, 28. But that doesn't seem to be at all like what Paul talks about in Romans 7, if you look at 18 or 21 or 22. Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I have, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability. And he says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Look at 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's very different from Romans 1. This isn't someone suppressing the truth. This is someone who's depressed by the truth that he sees in his own heart. This is someone who who delights in the law of God, who savors it, who, who deeply agonizes over his inability to keep it. This is a person grieving over inward failure and corruption. This isn't someone who hates the law of God. He says, I delight in the law of God. So, in short, I think... This is not the struggle of someone trying to abort the law of God. This is the struggle of someone who loves it and wants desperately to keep it better than he does. That's what I see. Point number two. I believe the purpose of this passage, it's not a downer. I believe the purpose of this passage is to encourage Christians to fight against indwelling sin. I get that in, oh, let's go to 16, 16 through 23. We've read this a couple times, but pretend you haven't heard these words just a minute ago. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my my flesh. He's not talking about the spirit in him. He's talking about himself, his flesh. It's not good. 
For I have, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin. He recognizes this principle, this sin that dwells within me. So, 21, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is, it's right there. It's right there. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, there's inside and outside. I see in my members the, the, the temptations that come, the desires Another law making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So whatever else, whatever else may be hard to explain, one thing's obvious, I think. If these verses are the words of a Christian, and I think they are, then sin is not going to disappear all by itself, and it's not going to disappear instantly. It will be forgiven instantly. But that's not what we're talking about here. Okay, everybody see that? We're not talking about the forgiveness of guilt. We're talking about the presence of weakness and sin. Those are two totally different things. The watchword, it seems to be found in 21. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right. Evil lies close at hand. I'm right on that knife edge so many times, he says. So again, he's not talking about the guilt of sin. That has been removed completely, thoroughly, instantly by redemption through the cross, and we all ought to say, praise God. This would be a good time. Yeah, yeah. He's not talking about that, and he's not doubting that. What he's talking about is, I want to do, I always sense evil so close. I'm vulnerable. So guilt is removed through grace, presence is removed through warfare. We must never get those two things confused. Another thing, it's important, I think, to know what these words do say. And what they don't say. Paul doesn't mean that he never does the right thing. That's not it. If if the message of Romans 7 is taken alongside of Romans 6 and Romans 8, Paul isn't saying life needs to be lived in nothing but a constant stream of failure. But it's also not going to be this endless, unbroken chain of confident victory. No one lives consistently above the kind of struggle that he's talking about. I really think, I really think that we need that voice of realism, particularly in North American media-driven Christianity. There's, There's a wonderful biblical place, church, for struggling against sin. Yes, struggling with sin. It's hard. There will be times when you lose. There will be times when you fail. But you're still forgiven. So, so, so get up. 
and start struggling again. Struggling is way better than not struggling. Never give up, never give in. So, so Romans chapter 7 is Paul's banishment of plastic image church life. Let me ask you something. Do you think in our prayer groups, in our ministry times, do you think we will, we will uh, have more compassion praying and ministering to one another for all of our needs if we think we're all spiritually in victory all the time or if we think we're right where Romans 7 says we are? What do you think would drive you to pray for your brother and sister in Christ more? I think this would. Way more. I think if we all had just this, this honest picture of where we are and the things we struggle with, we'd pour out our hearts more, ministering to one another, encouraging one another. So much the more, the writer of Hebrews says, as you see the day approaching. It would give us compassion. It would give us empathy. It would give us humility. Consider yourself, Paul says, restore one another considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. It's Paul's way of keeping us all honest. Romans 7 is Paul's way of saying there's a place for mourning. It's not always celebrating. There's a place for weeping with others before the Lord. There's a place for wiping silly grins off our faces. There's a time for pummeling heaven with loud cries of, of, of repentance and anguish for struggling saints. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. When do we do that? Confess our sins to one another. Well, we don't. I mean, that's what Catholics do, right? We don't do that. We go to Jesus. Only it doesn't say go to Jesus, does it? Put your finger under the words. Therefore confess your sins to who? One another. And, and the thing that keeps us from doing that is the, the assumption that, well, the person I'm confessing my sin to, he's a way more godly than I am. And he isn't. He's a Romans 7 kind of person just like you are. I would hope that when, you know, I don't say it all the time, but when we do prayer groups and pray for Sam, Pete, Margie, Gloria, Bob, pray for this missionary, that. By the way, I struggle with temper. Would you in this group please lift me up before the Lord and pray for me? What do you think would happen if we did that all the time? It comes from a Romans 7 understanding of, of where we're at. Point number three. The struggle with sin is somehow tied to the fact that we live in these earthbound physical bodies. Here, here's where I get that. I get it in verse 18 and then 23 and 24. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 23. I see in my members another war waging against the law of my mind and making me captive to 
the law of sin that dwells in my members? And then who will deliver me from this body of death? And, and the important point that Paul is making is this ongoing struggle with sin isn't a, a result of some substandard conversion. It's, it's meshed up with living in physical bodies like ours, with appetites and desires. He doesn't mean that if you, you know, slice me open, you'll find a little, a little box and it says sin. But these bodies are where sin takes advantage of us. With their desires, with their weaknesses, with their fatigue, with their appetites, with their habits, our members aren't easily trained in righteousness. That's what he's saying. Actually, we've already studied a briefer form of the same argument in Romans 6.19. Paul talks about this ongoing process of training in righteousness. He says in 6.19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. The key words are leading, leading to more lawlessness, leading to sanctification. But it's about leading, not arriving. It's about movement in a good direction, but not completion instantly. So still we struggle in hope and without condemnation. You know why? We struggle, but with hope, not with condemnation. We struggle with hopeful joy because we do know this. We know our weakness now, but we know where this is headed. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. Romans 7-ish, but children. And, and what we will be, well, that hasn't, it hasn't appeared yet. You haven't seen it yet. But here's what we know. We know that when he... Notice the time words here. When he appears, we're going to be like him. Because we'll see him as he is. And, and, and there's fuel in this. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. The time words. Now, not yet. Now, not yet. We know we will not end up defeated. We know that. These bodies will not always trip us up. Our deliverance begun now through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. The forgiveness, the grace, the cleansing that we receive right now will one day reshape and redirect these bodies of ours. The sight of the glory fully manifested in the second coming of Christ, but it's only dimly displayed right now, will one day defang the power of sin. Point number four, we're done in a couple seconds. Is there a purpose in this delay of full redemption? Could God perfect every one of us spiritually right now. Could he? How many say he could? 
Okay, he could. Wouldn't the world be a, wouldn't it be much nicer here? Why doesn't he do that? He could. Why doesn't he do that right now? Why the wait? Why the delay? I think we are left to struggle with sin to do two things. To deepen our dependency on grace and mercy in Christ Jesus. And secondly, to make us more compassionate rather than condemning of others who need our prayerful help and support. Those two things. That's why. It should be our struggle with, my, with our own sin that keeps us compassionate with others who trip up. This doesn't... Pay attention here. This does not mean ignoring sin in other people. The, 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 the go-to escape hatch of guilty Christians who just say, Don't judge me. Who are you to judge? Is ridiculous. I had that conversation in my office not that long ago person that's living with someone else they're both professing christians they're not married living together and when i talked to them she said don't you judge me and i said of course i'm judging you give your head a shake the whole body of christ ought to be judging you so it doesn't mean when i say compassion rather than condemnation it doesn't mean glossing over sin in other people what it does mean is uh, an idea to restore let me, let me help you see your sin. Let me help you repent as someone who needs to repent myself. Let's bring this to Jesus together. You see, it's not ignoring sin. It's not calling it something that it isn't. But it helps us to come with compassion. It helps us to come, I can see how much sin can bring bondage into someone else's life because I know how much it brings into my life. So keep struggling. Or you can find all sorts of places in the New Testament that say the same thing. If you like this better, 1 Timothy 6.12. Fight the good fight of faith. It's the same thing. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Never stop the fight. It's the best evidence of the life of the Spirit within. Never sign a truce with sin. Never make peace with it. That's the peace of death. The real test is, is found in the way you answer these questions. Do you love the law of God? Do you hate inward sin and compromise? And does your struggle make you look to the finished work of Christ alone for mercy and forgiveness? There's grace there. There's grace there. There's pardon there. There's help there. And one day, church, one day, not yet, There'll be total deliverance and freedom there.